tenor Matthew Polenzani, mezzo-soprano Sophie Koch, and stage director Francisco Negrin are backstage at Lyric. I remember thinking a long time ago that the music was beautiful, and I really had no idea um, how great it was. And having sung Manon, which is also by Massenet, I, I can't tell you how much more I prefer this to Manon. I find this opera so much more beautiful and the score so much more interesting. You know, as a mezzo, you're always looking for roles that could be interesting because there are not so many in the repertoire. You're, leading, you're looking for main parts or important parts and not always after the soprano, you know. <laughs> so this is a, an occasion for me to be the soprano. <laughs> and um, I wanted to sing that, but for many years I couldn't sing the... Um, the second aria, the Valle Secule Melarme, about the tears, you know, when she's crying. I couldn't sing this aria without crying. It took me years. Charlotte tries to be nice to him, so has a conversation with him, and that conversation becomes very complicated because Werther really insists that really she should be with him and that he loves her, etc. And she, again, has very strong feelings for him, but she represses them, and this time maybe a little bit more consciously represses them as she's married and she says this wonderful phrase she says I am married to another man so why do you love me? Welcome to another edition of Backstage at Lyric. This time we present an audio transcript of the Discovery Series session for Werther by Jules Massenet. The Discovery Series consists of panel discussions with the singers, directors, and conductors from the Lyric Opera season. There is usually one session per opera, and they generally take place a few days prior to the opening of each production. For more information on the Discovery Series, including ticket information, visit lyricopera.org. And now we turn things over to Lyric Opera of Chicago dramaturg Roger Pines, your moderator for this Discovery Series session for Werther. I think we really have a wonderful panel for Werther, starting with Ryan Upper Center alumnus Matthew Polanzani, who was singing his first Werther after his triumph, which I assume all of you witnessed at Lyric last season in his first Hoffmann. So highlights of his appearances in the French repertoire include The Damnation of Faust in Frankfurt, Manon on tour in Japan and at Coven, with Covent Garden, Les Toyens at the Met, Lacme in Bordeaux, and Romeo et Juliette at the Met and at Lyric. You will remember some of his other roles uh, with us, which have included Mozart's Belmonte and Verdi's Alfredo. And besides Covent Garden, he's also been heard in Europe at the Salzburg and Aix-en-Provence festivals and with the major houses of Vienna, Munich, and Florence. He opened the Met season, this current season, in the new Elysée d'Amore, and he is going to be returning there right after Werther to sing the Earl of Leicester in the Met's first Maria Stuarda. As Charlotte, the French mezzo-soprano Sophie Koch is making her American debut as Charlotte in this production. Her affinity for this role has been celebrated with triumphs in Paris, Munich, London, Madrid, Vienna, Brussels, and on both CD and DVD. 
Her other successes in French repertoire include L'Heure Espagnole in Paris, Mignon in Geneva, Dialogues of the Carmelites in Nice, and Massenet's very rarely heard Cléopâtre, which was recently produced for her at the Salzburg Festival. She's one of her generation's most successful interpreters of Strauss's Octavian and the Composer, and she actually sings Octavian on DVD from Baden-Baden in a production opposite Renee Fleming's Marshland. In recent seasons, she has been taking on some heavier parts, including Wagner's Brangena at Covent Garden and both Fricke and Valtrauta in Paris. Francisco Negrin's production of Werther premiered at San Francisco Opera two seasons ago. This is his, it's going to be his third production at Lyric, and this is following triumphs with Handel's Rinaldo, which was just last season, which I hope all of you saw, and Partenope. His newest DVD, which I just discovered yesterday and can't wait to see, is Bellinisi Puritani. That's from the Netherlands Opera, and that production will be coming to La Scala in 2014. Another uh, recent DVD... Uh, was recorded in Barcelona, and that's a very rarely heard piece by Martin Isolaire called The Tree of Diana. Um, he had a very successful Strasbourg production of Macbeth, which was remounted in April of this year at the Opera de Monte Carlo. Francisco has a very close association with the, um, Danish, the Royal Danish Opera in Copenhagen, and his work has also been seen at Covent Garden, New York City Opera, the Teatro Real in Madrid, and the Teatro Comunale in Bologna. So please join me in welcoming Sophie Koch, Matthew Polansani, and Francisco Negrin. Um, I wonder how many of you remember our last Werther. We've only done this piece twice at Lyric, and it was way back in 1979. So that means a lot of you will not have heard it before, and so it's very important that we go through the story just a little uh, before I start asking my questions. And I thought it would be a very good idea for Francisco to tell us the story as it will unfold on our stage in his production. So Francisco, take it away. Oh, dear. (laughs) Hello, everybody. Well, the story, let's see, I'll try and simplify it as much as possible. It's always hard to tell a story when you're really in it because you're, you're aware of all the little details and everything. It's really hard to simplify. Anyway, here I go. So it takes place in Germany in a provincial town in the 18th century, a town where everything is very nice and lovely people live with their nice family values. And, you know, one, one could compare it to the American Midwest in the 50s or something. <laughs> No, but it's important, actually, because this really defines the psychology of the characters very much. Um, And um, a a young woman lives there, Charlotte, and she's just lost her mother. So she lives there with her father, and she takes care of all her brothers and sisters since her mother died. So she's a, a busy young girl who suddenly had to be a bit more adult than she should need to be at her age. Um, and she's really desperately trying to do everything well and, you know, make sure everybody's well and happy, etc. And uh, another young man, another young person lives in this uh, town, Werther, who's a very different uh, person. He's, he's a poet, he's a writer, he's a dreamer, and he very much represents the beginning of the idea of 19th century romanticism that is going to come into this very tidy 18th century town and wreak havoc a little bit. Um, so uh, Charlotte is meant to marry a man called Albert, who's a lovely man and who really loves her. He's not the most fascinating person on earth, but he's really nice. 
and she has promised her mother on her dying bed to marry this man. And I, I personally think Charlotte is quite happy to marry him. She hasn't really thought much beyond that. And um, on the day that she's coming out of mourning, finally, after all the time she's been in mourning, she's invited to a ball, but she doesn't have an escort. So her father arranges for this young Werther, who's a very proper person, he has the right credentials and everything, to be her escort for that evening. And so he takes her to the ball. Uh, he's probably already been obsessing about Charlotte for a while. He's been watching her from afar, finding that she's like the most beautiful, perfect representation of, of what a woman should be. And um, He's already fantasized a lot about how wonderful it'll be, it would be to have a relationship with her, etc. So he's quite excited to go on, on this date, which is not really a date, to, to accompany her. And so going to the ball with her, he really completely falls head over heels in love with her and more than anything with the image of her with what she really represents to him in his picture of how the world should be and how everything should fit into this beautiful poetic perception he has of, of the world. Charlotte has a lovely evening with him and probably falls madly in love with him at that moment but she doesn't really recognize that. She, she's not really available to that kind of thought. She's, she's not ready for that. So she truly represses it. She has to get married with somebody else anyway. She's, she's busy, as I said before. And she hasn't dreamt that yet. She's, she's, she hasn't yet reached that point in her development where she's had these dreams of maybe leaving this town or having some other kind of romantic love. That, that hasn't occurred to her yet. So she represses this. Um, and she basically gets married. So uh, we, we find them again a few months later, and uh, she's married. Albert is very happily married with her. She's not so happily married with him, but doesn't say anything other than what she's meant to say, and everything's fine. And Werther um, has been around a lot. <laughs> Skulking around. So, yes. <laughs> and um, Albert realizes that he's in love with his wife and uh, tells him to please leave her alone, basically, since now they're married. Um, Werther strangely says yes, but doesn't mean it. And this is the story of this opera. Everybody says yes, but doesn't mean it quite a lot. <laughs> because everybody tries to do the right thing all the time. Yeah, quite genuinely, too. Um, and... Um, we see them again a few months later. Oh, uh, sorry. At that point, also, uh, Charlotte and Werther meet again. And uh, Charlotte tries to be nice to him, so has a conversation with him. And that conversation becomes very complicated because Werther really insists that really she should be with him and that he loves her, etc. And she, again, has very strong feelings for him, but she represses them and this time maybe a little bit more consciously represses them as she's married, and she says this wonderful phrase. She says, I am married to another man, so why do you love me? Um, she, it's nearly as if she can't even understand, you know, how this passion could go beyond what's proper and, and what should be. But, of course, underneath, it's all building up. Um, and so she says, just to be nice again, she says and also, I guess, because she wants to see him again, deep down. She says, come back, come back and see us at Christmas and tell us how you are. 
So at Christmas time, a few months later, um, she has been receiving endless letters from him in the interim that she has never answered. And she doesn't really know what to do with them. So um, she, she just gets very, very worried. And as she reads them, realizes more and more how much she cares about him and how worried she is that he might hurt himself because he's so extreme. He talks about suicide a lot in the letters and all that sort of thing. But she can't really do anything. She's married. And um, in, in this production, she even asks her husband for help with, with this situation, not realizing that in doing so, she's actually unconsciously saying to her husband that she's in love with another man. And Albert recognizes this and is devastated. Um, and um, she realizes more and more how this fire is in her that she didn't even know existed before and how much she had repressed it. And she um, really desires to have an encounter with Werther to the point that even whether she has this encounter or not, she feels incredibly guilty. Uh, and uh, Albert sees this. And basically, uh, uh, he has received a letter from Werther asking him to lend him his guns because he needs them for something. And Albert very gladly tells uh, him to please have them. Yeah, well, he, it's worse because he tells, he tells Charlotte to give him yes, the guns. Yes, it's worse, yes. <laughs> I'm trying to not give it all away. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> all right, then. <laughs> but yes, no, he actually gives them to Charlotte and says, well, you, since you care so much for him, go and give him the guns. And so um, there's many ways of seeing what happens next, but uh, my, basically they, they meet at last and they're able to express their love for each other truly, but it's too late because, in fact, he kills himself. In, in my interpretation of why he kills himself at that point uh, is that he realizes that he cannot possibly have this relationship forever. Even, even if they do meet, even if she does admit that she loves him, which she does, it cannot last forever because she's married. And, I mean, the idea of divorce is, doesn't even exist. So... Um, I think the only way he can poetically preserve this instant and this togetherness with her is by dying. And it's, uh, he, throughout the opera, he discusses really the meaning of death and the, he poeticizes that a lot and he has really rationalized in a beautiful way what it would mean for him to die. It's like a new life starting, the, life, the true life of the poet, the immortality of the poet in this perfect moment where he's finally united with the, the woman he, he thinks he loves, I guess. And... Uh, and she finally realizes that all along she's repressed these feelings for him and that she truly would have had an amazing relationship with him, but it's too late and uh, all is over. I forgot to say one thing earlier. When she realizes really that she's in love with him, after reading all those letters and everything, she sings an incredible aria called the Tear Aria, where she explains very specifically what I think is the whole point of the opera. She says the tears and the feelings that we repress come back and hit on our hearts like hammers. And that's when she realizes that her own unconscious repression of everything is what's going to be her downfall and Werther's downfall. And I think that's the story, a bit with my interpretation, a little bit on it. But Thank you. <laughs> that's great. So, Sophie, this, has been, this opera has been a very important part of your life. And Matthew... Now that you're singing your first one, I assume that in the future it's going to be an important part of your life too. So let me ask the two of you, 
if you were summing up the appeal of this piece to somebody who had never heard it before, and you know, this is why you need to come hear this production, what do you think would be the first thing that you would say? What do you think would be most important to say to that person who really didn't know what Werther was? To me, this opera is really about passion and, and romanticism. So uh, it's the discovery I speak about, of course, my, my character. Uh, it's a young lady that discovers how passionate she can be, and she would never have uh, thought that it would have been possible. She's discovering her own feelings. That's funny, because I'm American, so I have, the, I have an American point of view. And, uh, the, I'm you know, French, I yeah, to she, say that's right, She has a French point of view. And oh, you know. a bit German, so... <laughs> No, but you know, you know how like uh, if there's a train wreck or a car crash or something, everybody has to slow down and look at it. And it's not just because you want to make sure that everybody's okay or something, but there's something about brushing near mortality that somehow affirms our own li livingness. And Werther is a train wreck. I mean, he is, this guy is a living, breathing advertisement case study for Prozac. I mean, he's got a real, he has a real problem. And, you know, we, it's easy, we can joke a little bit about it. But, I mean, watching, watching, watching them, and she's right, the opera is incredibly passionate, and the music is incredibly beautiful. And um, so this would draw uh, the opera goer to a, to a piece like this. But for somebody who may, who may not see opera so much, it could be quite interesting to see, to watch people living these lives and deal with these issues which are so um, human. And depression and suicide are terribly prevalent in our world, you know, and watching people try and figure out a way to get past it is kind of an interesting thing to do. And of course, like I say, I'm not sure that this would be a European opinion. I do think it's an American opinion. It, I mean, being from America, I, I think, um, I think it's, I think it'd be an, more an American point of view than a European point of view. But for the person who doesn't go to the opera, for the person who might be, ah, oh, let me try this out. I love this Werther. You know, I mean, <laughs> you know, so I can't tell you how many times I've heard Werther. All my friends are coming. I mean, I'm from here, so I mean, all my friends. I, I always have a lot of people come, but so many times I've heard Werther. It's really hilarious. What you should say to them is, excuse me, but that's a com that is a company that makes candy. Yeah. Oh no, I, there's there's been all sorts of jokes about that. Yeah. Anyway, but uh, I don't know. That's my feeling about it. Um. Of course, these characters had their origin in the novel by Goethe, The Sorrows of Young Werther. So is reading the novel, and this I want to address to all of you, if you have read the novel, does it help or is it sort of a pain in the neck and you have to forget about it? In, in what way, have you, if, if you've been able to use anything you've gotten from the novel, how have you done that? Well, the novel is an amazing masterpiece. It's an extraordinary novel, and I highly recommend it to everyone. And, of course, you get, a, as, as a director, and certainly I imagine you two also, you get a lot of detail and understanding of who the characters are, etc., etc., from reading it, and you understand the period. But the libretto is really rather different in, in many of the ways the story is told, and the emphasis is quite different in many places. So it can be a little bit of a red herring to really stick 
to what one perceives of the novel. Mm. For example, in the novel, it's very clear that Werther and Charlotte have known each other all their lives, that since maybe their childhood, he's been a, a friend of the family, they've done things together, probably she's fallen in love with him already before, and then she has to marry Albert for, let's say, political reasons, etc. So it's slightly different from here, where in the opera, she clearly does not know him, really. She knows of him, but she doesn't have any experience with him. And in the novel, Albert is Werther's best friend. So it brings a whole other layer psychologically that isn't in the opera, where he doesn't know him at all, etc., etc., etc. So it's, it's very tricky, but always, this is always the case with opera that is based on a novel. Of course, the writers of the opera and the composers have to make a decision of how they, they're going to tell the story and what interests them in the story. And it's always very interesting to see what the differences are because it's by seeing what's missing or what's added that you understand what really interested the composer and the librettist uh, uh, and what they took from that novel. And different, you, when, when novels have been adapted in different periods, they've, they've been adapted in completely different ways. Sophie and Matthew, did you spend much time with the novel? Yeah. Well, I read it a long time ago when I was studying uh, literature. But, um, of course, it the opera focuses on two or three characters and uh, it's much more about Charlotte in the opera than in the novel mm. because uh, it's, it's a different point of view. Does she, in, does Goethe's Charlotte, does, do you get anything of her? I mean, do you, do you feel one way or the other about her or is it completely different? No, you understand the, the period, you understand the mm -hmm. mentality, you understand the romanticism, and um, how, comment est-ce qu'on peut dire, un peu serré par l'éducation, tu vois. Yeah, how, how restricted people are by the education. Yeah, how different the times were. Mm. Mm. Matthew, did you read the novel? I did. How, yeah, how did you feel I also, about it? I, I, I also loved it and consider it to be a masterpiece. And, um, I mean, it was uh, it was eye opening, of course. Uh, you know all those things that Francisco mentioned, especially about because the uh, I, I, the only thing I at the point I had been studying the opera but hadn't read the book yet, and of course he's right. I mean, there's not a lot of. I mean, it's like a movie that's said. You know, you get a book and they make a movie out of. Well, you can't get the whole movie in, mm -hmm. and he couldn't get the entire story into an opera either. I mean, uh, so, yeah, there's a lot, but there's layers of things there, and it depends on the interpretation, of course, and, uh, and, the, and, the, um, and the production that you're doing. And, um, you know, in our case, he's right. There's, there's not much, there's no room for, for the exploration of Albert and Werther's friendship. They have one scene. It lasts about two and a half, three minutes. I mean, and, and that's it's an the, argument. Yeah, and it's, and it's exactly. I mean, you don't, you don't get a sense. There's no way to understand that they might be friends. And um, or they could have been friends, or that they were friends, and this was the end of the friendship. I mean, you don't you don't even have time for that. This is just an argument, and um, so yeah. I mean, it's but I find I found the book also fascinating. Let me ask you, Matthew: Has Werther always been a goal for you? Uh, I wouldn't necessarily say it was a goal. It was it was on the list of pieces that I thought I would sing. And it was on the list of pieces that I knew I wanted to sing because I, I always thought the music was, I mean, I, re, I remember thinking a long time ago that the music was beautiful. And I really had no idea um, how great it was. And having sung Manon, which is also by Massenet, 
Um, and I've been saying, I've said, I don't know how many times I've said this. I said it to Maestro Davis. I said it to Tony Freud. I mean, I, I can't tell you how much more I prefer this to Manon. I find this opera so much more beautiful and the score so much more interesting. Um, and Manon has had a much bigger success much. all over the world, you know. But uh, I don't know. I, I, I find it much more beautiful and much more um, fun to sing. You took on Gérald, Romeo, Degrieux, Hoffmann, and Berlioz's Faust all mm -hmm. before you came to Werther. Was that intentional? Or did it just sort of work out that way? Uh, it mostly worked out that way. But you have to remember, too, as an American, we don't see Werther in America very often. You know, I don't know when the last time San Francisco did it before uh, it was new there in 2010. I mean, it, it had been... A long time, a long time, a and look at how we were, how we are here. It was the '70s, the last time we heard it. The Met, the last time they did it was with in the baritone version, you know, mm -hmm. and they, that was a Tom Hampson vehicle. They mm -hmm. did it for him basically, and I apparently I think they're going to have it next year. But it's just not one of those pieces we see all that often here in America. So yeah, it was on my list, but uh, um, I can't say. I mean, I have to say one thing that's nice is um, psychologically. It helps to have lived some and to, and to have an idea what depression might be like mm -hmm. in order to channel it when you're singing it. As a younger singer, somebody who's, whose view of the world is still open and not cynical and, and with fresh and with the idea that, yeah, everything's going to be fine. I'm going to work this out. She doesn't want to see me. That's fine. There's five million other women out there who want me. <laughs> I mean, you know, this... this There's something to be said for having grown up a little bit and having lived through, had life experiences that could inform me what, what might cause a depression and, um, and why his, his obsession with this woman, uh, you know, I mean, having had life experiences, I think, helps me interpret who he is better. So, yeah, it wasn't exactly a plan, but there are operas like, in, like Tito, which I, I've absolutely put off because I didn't think I had lived enough to do any justice to the character, you know, and I will, now I, I will take it on. And, um, you know, I mean, but, and that wasn't exactly the case here, but I can see how having waited a little bit has helped me. The first time we talked about it, you said that when you went back to the music, um, you know, once you knew that you were doing the role here, you said that you were stunned by just how breathtakingly beautiful it was. Was there a moment in the, the piece that you were listening to during that sort of reacquaintance with it where you said, oh, I just didn't know that this was... You mean so, mu what music in the opera? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, for sure, when, he, when, he's, when he's actually with Charlotte the first time, this little love theme that they have, I mean, which you only get it a couple times, you hear it three times in the opera, Right then, when he's with her for the first time, and then when he's reliving that moment with mm -hmm. her later, and in the end, when Charlotte actually sings, basically sings it. I mean, so you only get to, I mean, I, I don't know if it qualifies even as a leitmotif, but I mean, because we only hear it three times. But this music in particular, I, I, I found myself saying, holy cow, this is, this is, and this is stupendous, stupendous music. And I find the score to be another word I've used a lot lately is incredibly exotic, especially in his treatment of the woodwinds and how he uses them to characterize a scene. Um, I, I, I mean, I wish Maestro Davis was here because I'm sure you'd talk more eloquently about it. But I mean, and more educatedly, 
Can you say that? Uh, anyway, um, you get my point. I mean, um, just I just think the whole thing is a masterpiece. Sophie, when you were first studying, were you already anticipating that Charlotte was going to be for you? You know, as a mezzo, you're always looking for roles that could be interesting because there are not so many in the repertoire. You're, leading, you're looking for main parts or important parts and not always after the soprano, you know. <laughs> so this is a, an occasion for me to be the soprano. <laughs> and um, I wanted to sing that. But for many years, I couldn't sing the, um, the second aria, the Valle les Melarme, about the tears, you know, when she's crying. I couldn't sing this aria without crying. It took me years. So when you started singing the role on stage, you were still crying? No. Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> oh, she worked that out. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> That's um, so. Where did Charlotte then fit in your progress as a singer? Did you come to a lot of Mozart, for example, before you ever got to Charlotte? Where did she? Where was she in sort of the, your career path? I started my career first with lots of Mozart and uh, Rossini. And uh, Charlotte was after I started uh, to sing Strauss, because Strauss is quite lyrical. And Charlotte is French, it's a different way to, to pronounce, to, to make the vo- vowels. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was not so easy for me, even if I'm French. It's funny, but uh, German has always, always come more naturally for me. And... Um, Yes, it came. I started uh, singing the role seven years ago, and, and quite regularly. And this is, I think, your seventh or eighth production? Yes. Is that? Yes. As a French mezzo, was it just sort of accepted that this, I mean, did people say to you, of course you're going to do Charlotte, was it, or, as I should think it would be for, you know, as a lyric mezzo in, in Yes, France? of course, with my kind, kind of voice I have, uh, it was uh, natural, I should say. Right. Yeah, sure. Um, Francisco, you said to me when we first talked about Werther some months ago that you were planning essentially to direct the music rather than the libretto, which I thought was an idea that you should bring to our audience's attention so they understand exactly what that means. Yes, what I mean is that I don't necessarily first pay attention to the staging indications in the libretto. I first pay attention to what the music is saying put together with the words. And I try to make that palpable to the audience through the staging. And so, I don't know, there's a small example, for a really tiny example, would be, um, there's a scene where Sophie, who's Charlotte's younger sister, um, is trying to get her father to go out and have a drink because, you know, they're, they're getting over the death of the mother and all of that. And it's a very simple little scene. But the music goes, uh, uh, as soon as the father leaves, the music goes unbelievably dark for a second, and incredibly melancholical. And there's no indication in the libretto of what's going on there. It's just meant to be Sophie being very nice and the bailiff going away. And I thought, well, no, there's something major going on there. And that completely colored my whole interpretation of who Sophie was, in that at that moment, I think she has a little breakdown and cries all the, all the tears that she hasn't cried for her mother's death up to then. And to me, it's a, it's a wonderful little premonition of the tear aria. But Sophie actually does express those tears and hence does not have the repression problem that Charlotte has, who, who ends up singing her tear aria much later when it's nearly a little bit too late. 
Um, so that's an example of what I mean about staging the music. I heard this in the score. It's not in the text. It's not in the stage indica staging indications. It's purely in the music. And the same way there's this extraordinary interlude between Acts 3 and 4, which is really there mostly to enable the scene change. But it would be an amazing waste just as a scene change because it is one of the highlights, I think, musically of the piece. It's where you most sense the love between them, the passion between them really being expressed openly, as it were. Um, so again, I wanted to create a production where that moment musically would be as essential as any of the arias and where the... It, 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 it indicated to me how I had to aim the arc of the story so that that would be the culmination of the, of the love story. These are examples, but they would be like every scene. I, I would say that it's because of what happens in the music that I think I understand the characters in a certain way. Right. Thank you. Matthew Werther spends virtually this entire opera longing for a woman he can't have... So how do you present him to the audience so that we don't get impatient with him and frustrated with him? <laughs> I'm not sure that it's really possible. I mean, you try to, I, I try to just make him as human and real as I can so that I could be anybody here's friend who you know, somebody who's just got... He's a little touched in the head, you know what I mean? He's, he's I mean, I don't know, it's, it's, a hard, it's a hard thing to do because, I mean, Massenet in the libretto and frankly in the book, you might as well go right, if you want to go all the way back to the book, I mean, it's clear that um, he, he's got an edge to him that is, he's always teetering on the brink of, of his own destruction and, um, and it's hard to make him seem likable, you know? You can like him for his... Uh, for his honesty, because he even says, you know, when he tells Albert, that's fine. You know what? It's okay. You're going to be with her. I will be happy. It'll be my place in the world to um, to be to be happy for you, basically. And um, and then he, he and as soon as Albert leaves, he says, I know I'm I'm lying. I know I'm a liar. You know. So um, yeah, you can appreciate him for his honesty, and and for the true true. Um, for the trueness of his heart, but I mean, yeah, it's hard not to not to want to just grab him by the lapels and say, "Come on, would you please just let go, let go, and move on?" And you don't, you know, we don't, we don't get it. There's no. No, I don't really agree. If I can say no? something, no, I think is a an idealistic, yes. idealistic. Mm -hmm. And that is still a character that exists. I mean, artists. Mm. There are plenty of artists. We are. Idealistics and live in their dreams, in mm. their fantasy, and not in the real life. Oh yeah, I think it can be really fascinating for a woman. Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. many women Absolutely. are fascinated by these by these artists and not person living a very uh, bodenständig, uh, auf Deutsch. <laughs> yeah. uh, how do you call that? You know, or, or, to the ground. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, ordinary and ordinary day life. To day. It's fascinating. You can't live with these persons, but you mm. are fascinated and you fall in love with these mm. persons. And I think it's essential that uh, one understands Werther from the point of view that he is capable of seeing the world in an, and expressing the world in a way that nobody else can in that world, mm. which is why uh, actually when he, when at the point where I describe Charlotte as really desiring him, I have him come in carrying a flame, 
he because at that point he represents you know the the, the fire of desire and of poetry and a, a way of seeing the world that burns you when you look at it you know it's blinding and in that way he's you can really love him because he he's not annoying in that he's he's exceptional in that way it, in contrast with the everyday life of this town he's dangerous and annoying but if you look at it from his point of view they are annoying <laughs> if you say, I mean for being so banal and that's really what the novel is about because you, one has to remember the novel was written in the 18th century before romanticism and Goethe kind of invi- invented romanticism with this character so it's something like from the future coming down into this town that nobody can understand and from this character in in a, in a movement that w- then was called Sturm und Drang in German which means storm and torment and it w- it's this movement that created romanticism later and when he talks to Charlotte he talks in a way she, she has never heard these words she couldn't even think they would exist and I'm sure still yes. nowadays a woman that Here's a man speaking about poetry and being really inventive and really so different from normal people. Mm. I mean, something re- very fascinating. Mm. You can really compare, once again, to America in the 1950s, for example. I don't know if any of you have seen the series called Mad Men, which is a wonderful uh, thing, by the way. Uh, but you really see these very tidy 1950s housewives with a perfect little you know, uh, Doris Day look. And trying to live, you know, make them right muffins and have the right relationship with all the neighbors and everybody, you know, being very proper. And, and if, if you don't do the barbecue on the Sunday in the right way, everybody talks about you and all that. <laughs> and in this, into this world come, you know, the beatniks or something. And, uh, and one of these women is, totally falls in love with this other possibility of a whole other life that they, they had not even thought of. So I think it's very, very, we can very, very easily relate to this kind of new thought entering a, a world that isn't thinking that way at that time. So, Sophie, when you first meet him in Act One, and when you come back from the ball with him, what is most important to you as an actress to communicate to your audience as far as Charlotte's feelings during those first two episodes with him? I think she already fell in love and she knows that. She's not really aware. She tries to... Um, to not, not think about it, basically. Yeah, yeah try to n- not to think and not, not show him, of course. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, what's interesting in your staging, Francisco, is that the first line of the that duet between the two of them at the end of the first deck, il faut nous séparer, which means oh, yes. we, we need to separate now. Um, you don't, Sophie, don't you sing that to Albert rather oh, yeah. than to Werther? Yeah, I've, yes. I've, I've fiddled a bit with the uh, chronology of events there. Uh-huh. I really was desperate to give Albert and Sophie a chance. <laughs> I really, you know, the, Albert has a really bad reputation in the world of opera. You know, he's like the, this sort of boring character, supposedly. And he has this gorgeous music. And he's so genuine and simple. He's a bit like Sophie. You know, he just expresses what he feels. And uh, I really wanted the audience to understand that the relationship between, Sophie, between Charlotte and Albert isn't a perfectly okay thing. Uh, because if not... If that relationship doesn't exist, where is the danger of Werther? You know, if there's nothing to break, why is there a danger and why should we be upset? 
Um, and I also find that it's very beautiful to show how Albert realizes little by little that he's losing his wife, this wife that he very generally adores and is absolutely lovely to. And he watches her slowly walk away from him and it's devastating for him. And by, by showing the devastation of, of Albert, I can show the devastation of that whole little world. Um, so it, it became important to me to, to show that. And so when Werther takes Charlotte to the ball, normally they come back together. He walks her home and, they, and she says, well, we better, you know, I'm home and good night, you know. He, she can't be seen, you know, to invite him to her bedroom or anything. <laughs> um, so in, instead of that, I have them return separately. They've probably, he's walked her home maybe just to the gate and he's gone to his uh, house and she's walking through her garden and Albert is there. He's come home a little early from his business trip and he has presents for her. And there's this beautiful uh, clair de lune, which means a moonlight interlude. Um, which normally describes the romance that is being born between Werther and Charlotte, but I wanted to show that, and the romance that is being born between Sophie and Werther, and the romance that exists already for Albert with, with Charlotte. So I use that moonlight to express everybody's budding love relationships that are mostly all going to be destroyed in the next few scenes. This is... That gives you an idea, what Francisco was just talking about, of why this production is going to be revelatory to any audience who has heard Werther before, because the character of Albert, and I don't, Sophie, after all these productions of Werther that you've done, have you ever been in a production where, where Albert was anything but a sort of shadowy figure that didn't really have much substance? Well, I have to say, I always did productions with uh, interesting Alberts. <laughs> but uh, in this one, it's um, much more um, clear, of course. And it's very different. I have to say, I have to um, confess that uh, it hasn't been easy at the beginning to get uh, into this uh, new conception of, mm -hmm. of uh, Werther. But I think it's, it's really working. It's really in interesting. Uh, interesting for us to play. It's a challenge to play because uh, it's you will see it's not a, a classical duet as you would uh, um, call it but it makes sense what I think is just so brilliant is that suddenly you're thinking about a character in an entirely different way than the way you were thinking about him before uh, and suddenly he has uh, an emotional life mm -hmm. which you just don't get um, Matthew you have two fantastic monologues to sing in Act 2, uh, one close to the beginning of the act and then one at the end. And they're both very different in terms of what's going on with the characters. So you can, can you describe his feelings um, about, you know, in terms of what, what's going on emotionally in that first one and then how he develops in, to the point where he can sing the second one? Yeah, uh, well, in the first one, somehow there's, there's still a kernel of hope inside that something's going to work for him. I don't know. And he talks about how badly he wants, he, he, how he believes it should be him that Charlotte is with. I mean, he actually says, c'est moi qu'elle pouvait être, she should love, she should love me. You know? And, um, and he talks about how he wants just to press her to his chest and hold her. And, and, um, and there's still something inside of him that maybe 
perhaps still believes that there's a way that there's going to be a way forward. And how and, is he expressing that musically? Because it's so different from the way. Th- oh yeah, you're I mean the music is. The second it's, it's it's well it's it's much more outward and extroverted and I don't want to say triumphant, but I mean it's it's big and quick and and um, and. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, really, uh, you couldn't change. You couldn't have it any differently from from what he do, what happens when uh, when she says to, after she says um, after she says to him, "You can come back maybe at Christmas," you know, she says, and uh, and for him, he, he all he can think of is, uh, "You, yeah, you don't get it, you don't understand," and um, and at that point, he he starts to consider his own mortality. And he starts to think about death as the real, only solution available to him. He can see no other way forward. This is only at the end of Act Two, and we have two more acts to go. You know, what I mean. And how does um, how does he express in words his his thoughts regarding death? I think it's it's a beautiful image. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, he 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 uh, he says, you know, why why do I. Uh, why 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 do we tremble in front of death in you know in front of our own death he says you lift up the curtain and you pass to the other side and we don't know what's on the other side but whatever's on the other side is going to be better than where he is right now and all isn't all of that expressed musically in like the most intimate oh it's singing really in the, yeah, that you do in the whole role it's very quiet and very reflective and very introspective and very private, even though we're, you know, singing for an audience of 3,000 or whatever. But, I mean, it's a very private, quiet moment. And his acceptance of it, um, I mean, uh, you know, he still, he, he even, he, he, he hasn't, this is just when it when it becomes a reality, not just something that's niggling around back there in his brain, but something that's next to him all the time and no matter what step he takes going forward or backward this it's it's right here and i mean he says in the end if i cries out to god you know like ah you are a god who i don't know and and i i i you know and but i i believe in you he says i but i but i have faith in you you know and he actually asked god to call to him call me mm-hmm. you know and um he is desperate and it's uh, oh, it's uh, unbelievably great music. Uh, have we said that before? I mean, it's really great music. And then when he, he is actually dying, really just before he dies, he says, now my life is beginning. Mm, yeah, exactly. Mm. Mm. So, Sophie, when you're on stage with Charlotte and you're saying to him, what is, what is going through your mind when you say those words, a Noel, you know, come back mm-hmm. at Christmas? Why would she say that? I think in her mind, Christmas is just a big... Um, important moment of the year where everybody is um, together and and um, exactly it's a time when you can you know it's, it's, you can invite people without it meaning yes. too much <laughs> it's so religious it's nothing but so but you you're together so if he's there among all of these other people it won't really matter yes right. yeah. no, but it's funny because she kind of says it apropos you know it's mm-hmm. like how about christmas yes i mean it's is. very off there she it's it's just like the first thing that comes to her mind and, yes. Um, uh, yes, and then he goes away, and she's left alone, and she goes, "Why did I say Christmas?" Yeah, mm, yeah. <laughs> it's really actually written that way. It mm. 
so you began you begin to reveal your feelings to a certain extent in your letters scene, which in terms of interpretation is probably the most challenging moment of your entire role. So, I mean, it's a long scene. I mean, it's about an eight-minute aria, isn't mm-hmm. it, I would think? So how do you sort of build it up to to that climactic moment? I mean, what sort of stages do you go through in the letter scene emotionally? You know, everything is written in the music and so magically written mm-hmm. and so clear. And um, first she, she sees the letter and she realizes the, the, that uh, his entire life, Werther's entire life, is in these letters, and um, she should maybe destroy them, but she can't. But in this staging is something very special. Usually she sings for herself, and it's her own mental journey, psychological mental journey for herself. In this staging, it's very different, because she sings to Albert. And it, it changes a lot, the, the, the meaning of this scene, of course. Um, and then she opens three different letters. The one um, is very simple, nothing special in it. The second is more... Um, it's happier, it's lighter. It's happier, it's about the children, it's remembrances from the children, some, something that could be happy. And the third is terrible, is dramatic, is um, announcing um, uh, you, you will uh, shiver. He says, yeah, you will, you will be afraid, you, you will, will be tremble. be afraid, you will shiver, you will... Right. And she says that to Albert in this scene. Can you imagine this? Nobody would do that. Ooh. <laughs> so. and, and what's so interesting vocally is that you end it in probably, that's probably the lowest moment of, of the, the entire role vocally at the end. Is it what, like a low C sharp or something like that? It matches really the, the word, the expression, tu frémiras. Which means... It's so down. Tu frémiras. You, 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 you will tremble. You will tremble, tremble when, when yeah, you see exactly. what I do. Francisco, you mentioned previously um, the character of Sophie, uh, who is the next oldest ca- uh, of the, the children of the bailiff after Charlotte. Um, and we see a lot of her in Act 2 and Act 3. And how do you in this staging make it clear that this is somebody sort of beyond the standard perky ingenue? Yes. Well, we're talking about annoying characters. She would be the annoying character, really. <laughs> <laughs> and I really was desperate for her not to be annoying because I actually think she's a wonderful character. And she sings these, you know, typical uh, subrette arias, very, very light coloratura arias, um, that to me didn't sound all that jolly. They, they sounded like somebody trying to be happy rather than somebody who was just plain happy. And so again, I already explained how I came to, to, to take that decision. But it works really wonderfully when you realize that she, being a little bit younger and a bit more open than Charlotte, also uh, less preoccupied with uh, you know, practicalities of her life, she, she can observe what the other characters are going through. And so I have her spy a lot. I have her be aware of the budding relationship between them. I have her be aware of her feelings for Werther. I have her go over to Werther's house and discover that he has all, you know, all these uh, drawings that he makes of Charlotte and all these letters that he's writing to her. So she becomes very, very aware before anybody else of what's going on. And she, she sees the danger in it. 
and she she walks into several arguments and things and always tries to resolve them, always tries to have people not go into the argument or try and see the good side of what they're living through. And so she sings all these areas that to me, are, rather than happy areas, they're hopeful areas and tries to communicate that hope to the other characters. And sometimes, you know, she opens, she's a big mouth and she upsets people, but it's all, all part of human nature. So in this production... How much of Act 3 and Act 4 is happening in Charlotte's mind? There's only one scene that I think I do really bizarrely. <laughs> Genuinely bizarrely, as opposed to, you know, the, the letter scene, okay, she's, Albert is there, but I mean, it's still the letter scene, it's not. Um, the, the, really, the, the place where I've really twisted the, the story a little bit is the, the point where Albert comes back at Christmas time. Normally, he comes back just after she's read the letters and said how repressed she feels. He comes back and they have... Werther. What did I say? Oh, sorry. So when Werther actually comes back on, at Christmas as invited, <laughs> and they, they have a love duet, basically. Well, one could call it a love duet, but she never actually says, I love you in it. She actually says, no, stop, please, God, protect me, please don't, etc., etc. <laughs> but it is a love duet. And so, uh, because she never says it, and because the, the music is so extraordinarily exaggerated compared to anything else in the opera, uh, in Massenet in general, and in this opera in particular, we've already been saying it, all the most profound moments are expressed really quietly and really subtly. Um, and here, this love duet is suddenly incredibly overt. So I thought there's something that doesn't stick together very well for me here dramatically and stylistically. So I thought, well, if she's just realized that she's in love with this man, if she's just realized that she's completely uh, let go of, of, of her relationship with her husband, I think at that point she has to have a moment to herself. And I, I have her go to bed and through the night start to fantasize more and more of what it would be like if he did come at Christmas. And so that becomes to me this big dream sequence during which Werther sings his most famous aria, which is a wonderful poem to, about the beauty of the universe. And I think what she's doing at that point is she's looking at the books that they read together and all of that and, and really becoming this romantic, passionate character that she has never been before. And she look, goes back to literature and, and, and reads things into these poems that she had never really understood before what they meant. And she has her first, let's say, erotic dream, as it were. Um, and so that whole duet becomes just her fantasy of what a love duet would be with him. And she becomes very scared at the end of it and says, please, please, God, protect me from this because it's very dangerous. I'm going to burn up. You know, I'm going to destroy my whole life if I continue like this. And she says, please, go. I want to forget you. Go, 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 she says in this production to, to her fantasies. And then Albert asks her to take the guns to Werther and then they meet in this production, in this interlude where normally nothing happens. Here they finally meet, and she's ready to, to have the encounter with him. But he shoots himself, because he needs to preserve that moment in time forever and make drama out of it, drama in the sense of theater and poetry. So, Matthew, in that death scene, it's, he takes a while to die, <laughs> does he not? Uh, in most productions, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so what, 
is what's going on emotionally with him as he goes through that scene? What sort of stages of dying does he go through? Well, we we do we did it a little differently. Um, he 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 kills himself in front of her, and uh, and then he. Uh, well, you know, it's funny because we talked about giving stuff away, and I kind of don't want to talk that's about very, it. Oh, okay. That's a very big giveaway, that one. Yeah, I mean. Well, let's say there's a problem dramaturgically just for any director, I think, that, yes, this person shoots himself and then sings for 20 minutes. It is, it is famously, you know, when people who don't like opera say, but look, opera's really stupid, they usually use that as an example. And so it just becomes a little... Oh, they do, believe me. <laughs> or, or the last act of Manon Lescaux, remember, also, where she takes yes, a really that, long absolutely, time. Absolutely, absolutely. So it just, you know, it, it is just tricky to direct a scene where for 20 minutes somebody is dying in the arms of somebody else, it becomes quite static. And it's hard to express more ideas than just that one idea. I mean, I'm sure there's a million ways of doing it. And in fact, I have directed Werther that way as well. But it seemed to me more interesting to enable, first of all, the singer to not have to be dying throughout the whole thing <laughs> and just sing this unbelievably subtle, beautiful, tender... Uh, otherworldly music. Uh, again, where he talks about his life beginning, he talks about finally being with her forever, etc. Um, and to enable me to to do things with the staging that expressed different stages of Charlotte's expression of her love for him, where she can, we, I could show denial, uh, fear, uh, tenderness, uh, intimacy. Um, um, practicality, all these things I wanted to be able to, to show. So what we do quite simply is that he shoots himself and then his simply, I mean, it's a really old-fashioned device, his soul separates from his body and Charlotte has a conversation with his ghost, as it were, with his soul. And there, you're gonna, you're they're in peace. You're giving the whole thing up. I know, but I have to. <laughs> it's his fault. <laughs> uh, in, in conclusion, I wanted to ask Matthew and Sophie... Do you recall any experiences that you maybe witnessed when you were a teenager, early 20s or whatever, people that you knew who were going through the kind of obsession that Werther has for Charlotte? And if you do remember any of that, did you draw upon those memories in playing Werther and Charlotte? Or, or did you yourself experience this kind of, of, of obsession? I see people in the audience who might have uh, experienced that. <laughs> I, I can't, I mean, I can't say that I ever, I, I, I can think of, especially in high school, girls who I thought were pretty or whatever that, I, you know, but I never really, I can't say I ever really knew anybody who was as obsessed as he is. You know, I, 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 I But it's, it's important to indicate he's more obsessed with the idea of love and mm. of perfection than with Charlotte herself as a human person in the opera. He doesn't really know her. He, he falls in love with her before even meeting her. You know, she represents an ideal. ideal so yeah. the obsession is more easy to understand because it's, it's an obsession with there the whole concept. There is actually a, a fabulous novel of, um, do you see, Belle du famous novel, mm. famous novel about this ideal of love, someone falling in love with the idea of love and not mm. with the person herself. Yes, very dangerous thing to do. Yes, uh, it is. No, but it is. And it happens, you know, very often, you know, people can fall in love with the, what they think the person is. Mm. 
Yes. And then through the relationship, you realize the person is not like that and you're in deep trouble. Uh, I, I in, in my past, I've had a Charlotte moment where, to me, that really informed how I understand Charlotte, which is when you don't know that you're in love with somebody and all your friends are going, oh, but can't you tell you're totally in love with that person? Like, no, it's just a friend, you know. No, no, I just really care about that person, but I'm not really in love, no. And everyone's going, you're totally in love, realize it. And then only later do you realize that they were right, usually when something's gone wrong or you haven't been able to be with that person. Um, But as I said, if you are really an idealistic person, it can happen. Yes. Easily. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, this group has a dress rehearsal tomorrow, so we need to let them go. Thank you all very much indeed. Thank you for listening to this edition of Backstage at Lyric. For more interactive content and to purchase tickets, visit lyricopera.org.